That's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm glad we're having a moment that you'll have to cut out that I, I didn't screw up <laughs> <laughs> for a change. Greetings across whatever you listen to podcasts on. This is the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell, a podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. I'm Ben Modell. I'm a silent film accompanist, historian, educator, and presenter, and home video label. I'm the co-host here with my friend and co-producer and co-host, Kerr Lockhart. Hi, Kerr. Hey, Ben. Seems like you're back playing in person more, playing and yeah. teaching and out in the real world. Yeah, yeah. Slowly venturing out outside of the cave of the, <laughs> the COVID cocoon. We've all been yes. ensconced in, been, in, in, in various degrees. We're recording in early February. So uh, if you were listening to this years later, uh, this is the Omicron variant is, we're told, fading. And I see that your dance card is filling up uh, yes. a bit again. Yes, it is. It never feels like it's as busy as it is for other people. But when you only post the things that you're doing and not when you're sitting down eating a sandwich, people <laughs> take all of that and press it together. And boy, you're just, boy, you're so busy. I, I hope you have a minute to go to the bathroom or say hello to me or something like that. No, I actually have plenty of time. It just looks like a lot. I'm hoping we get another crack at life as we sort of knew it. it yeah. A lot of the uh, festivals are putting up calendars, festivals for... Oh, yeah. Uh, the summer and and early autumn so they are showing optimism yeah they they definitely are i know tcm is is planning to have its classic film festival in april and there are some venues like the capitol theater in rome new york which had in january uh, a big marquee lighting ceremony they have fundraised and built a replica of its the theater's original 1939 marquee the theater itself opened in 28 but most of the renovations they're doing are bringing it back to spec of a renovation that was done in 39 and they're having in-person things and they had a film show of movies that were released in 1928 one of which was call again with edward everett horton <laughs> so edward i was happy to send that off to them yeah <laughs> the new silent film star yeah, we were talking before we started rolling. Kerr, you were saying that you've heard more about this particular set I, than anything that I've released. Absolutely. Of course, he's already familiar. Right. People already know who he is. You don't associate him with pantomime. This is a guy who's funny because of the way he uses his voice. And maybe he does takes, but they're takes based on reactions to lines. So how could this guy be a pantomime artist? It doesn't compute right away. Yeah. And yet he is. He's terrifically effective. Oh, he's wonderful. And and the other thing is you figure, well, if I know him as being famous from films in the 1930s and 40s, well, whatever he could have made in the 20s is probably just way off mark or he's running around throwing things at each other. And when you realize that these films were produced by Harold Lloyd and not just like, oh, I'm going to throw money at this and we'll hire an independent company to make these things. It's the same people who had just made the kid brother and who had been working with Harold Lloyd for years. And the production values on some of them, like Dad's Choice in particular, the lighting design and the use of filters that Walter London uses and the number of extras. You know, you have to pinch yourself and remind yourself, oh, I'm not in the middle of a Paramount 7-reel feature. Mm -hmm. uh, th this is a 2-reel comedy short. I and really so they're think... extremely tight and extremely well-made. 
Dan's choice. Steve and I feel it like it's it's up there with Charlie Chase, Leo McCary. Some of some of their better shorts is just so well made. And the other thing I know I enjoy about them is that there's only eight, and none of them are stylistically exactly like the others. There's a wide range of styles to all of them. Because what I've read is that Harold Lloyd said he wanted to keep his crew busy because they were now making one feature a year instead of two, and it wasn't like. Okay, let us let's set up a formula. Mm-hmm. We'll stick Edward Everett Horton in this situation, and we'll just do that again and mm-hmm. again and again. There's a slight amount of real reinvention on each of the shorts, and because they survive <laughs> camera negative, so between that and, and the digital cleanup we had done by uh, Benjamin Solovey at, at Origins Archival, they just look really, really good. Yeah, you recorded the scores, and then yeah. since then you've made a number of live appearances with yeah. them. AFI Silver and uh, we showed and, we showed uh, one of them at the Capitol Theater and at Capitol Fest and then Steve and I did a live stream for the Slapstick Festival in Bristol. What was exciting for me about that is that not only was it streamed into people's homes, but it, people in a movie theater in Bristol, UK, saw our show. So we streamed mm-hmm. is the first time in the history of anything that anybody has done a live streamed, live accompanied silent film show into a cinema. Into a into the theater. Into a cinema. And now, most recently in MoMA. So I'm yeah. curious, this is a real row of playing the same films or a group of them. Yeah. How's your playing evolving as you live with these films in, in you know, real quick succession of, show, of performances? Well, comedy music is comedy music. And what's been fun is that I have main themes for all the shorts that I worked out when I was recording the shorts. So the program we usually do, which is Find the King, Scrambled Weddings and dad's choice i have main themes for them so i'll use those sparingly and then they're like islands that you could swim from one to the other so i'll play the main theme and then the film begins and i dive off into the water and swim around until there's a moment when the theme can come back and i'll get back on that island and play it again so it's been fun because i recorded them in a vacuum first Mm -hmm. i had no experience with an audience with these films. One thing that's different with the live shows, there's more laughs in these films in a theater. There are subtle moments, eyebrow raises, and little things that aren't overt gags that I would recognize as such in scoring them by myself. But I have a very strong memory of when we showed Find the King at the AFI Silver last November. No audience has seen this movie since 1928. And the first laugh was one I wasn't expecting to be there. <laughs> and so I, I leaned back musically and thought, oh, I got to treat this moment a little differently. I don't have to barrel, not barrel through, but keep you don't momentum have going because, the oh, to the next oh, this moment. is a laugh moment. Yeah. And then, so the, my experience is slightly different. And then now I've, I played for the films three times, most recently at the Museum of Modern Art. The show in Bristol, what was interesting, a couple of people I know who were in the Watershed Cinema in Bristol told me that people clapped at the end of every film. <laughs> I couldn't hear it, of That's course. Nice. Uh, and that they clapped at the end of the show. I'm sure they laughed. I have to, I forgot to ask. But it's been a different trip going on the journey with these films with an audience. At least having those main themes as as an anchor here and there is helpful for me because then I'm not just, it's not completely 
improvisation and I can just sort of relax. Oh, I'll, oh, that's right. Here's the main theme and I actually know how that goes. It's, it's like uh, starting with an audience suggestion if you're uh, an improv sketch. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> You've got, yeah, okay, so you I've can got bring it suggestion. back and you bring it back and then you wrap up the scene by doing a callback and scene. So, exactly. But it's been gratifying just for Mr. Horton and Mr. Lloyd, wherever they may be, that these films have refound an audience. There's so many other comedy shorts that we can watch and enjoy that we know and because these just come out of nowhere, are extremely well made, and then disappear because talking pictures come in and Lloyd gets busy making Welcome Danger. In the way that the mishaps of Musty Suffer come out of nowhere, they happen for a little bit, and then they stop, and nobody ever makes anything like it ever again. <laughs> well, it's a darn good thing that the Horton films were made for Harold Lloyd, and therefore were preserved because... The silent films from 28 and 29 have the highest missing rate, at least oh. among the studios, because the studios figured they were worthless. You know, they weren't in perfect shape when the nitrate uh, camera negatives and prints that had been stored in, in Harold Lloyd's vaults came into the possession of Richard Simonton, who's a film preservationist who was working for the AFI, the American Film Institute, and had his own lab. He When he got these nitrate prints he discovered that they had been wrapped in cellophane by somebody saw they were starting to go and contacted the library of congress and arranged for funding through the afi for him to do the preservation work and he saved these films but for the longest time nobody really ever knew about them because they predate the famous things that we know horton for even I, what little I knew of them was like, oh, yeah, these, these little uh, kind of anomaly offbeat shorts. So there's a couple of these things. It wasn't until I really rolled up my sleeves along with Steve and Crystal and, and Ben Solovey, who did the restoration work, and Chris Krause, who did the grading, that we were like, oh, these are fantastic. They're not the same quality as a Lloyd feature. Yeah, and also being shorts. If they hadn't gotten either syndicated in early television or put in a Robert Youngson film, you know, there were so few outlets to see a new short. New features, they get discovered on a rolling basis. Every year we have a few dozen more that yeah. we maybe we thought were lost. But comedy shorts, we sort of thought that canon was... Yeah, but it's very gratifying that the films have found an, a new audience. I know Sue Lloyd is very pleased that these films are being seen again because they're an important part of Harold Lloyd's body of work, whether he was in the films or not. I'm quite sure they were made on the same level of craft. Uh, Steve Massa, in doing some recent research, got a hold of key books that Paramount had, uh, and these are publicity folios that were used by exhibitors to promote the films, and they have stills in them. And Steve has found in the key books for the Horton shorts in a number of cases scenes stills from scenes that are not in the films mm -hmm. and this tells us that like Lloyd and his team did with Lloyd's films both the shorts and the features they shot extra and would go back and recut and reshoot and just make these films as perfect as they possibly could be it wasn't like okay we're done in the bakery now <laughs> let's move on to the beach for real too and see and then we'll have a chase at the end. And I'm hoping production records survive oh, yeah. on these because I'd love to know just where it all fits in with the chronology because they're made just after Kid Brother is finished and goes, in some cases, I think there's an overlap with the, the making of Speedy. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you be interested to see scenarios and cutting notes? Oh, yeah. It'd, yeah. Be, it'd be fascinating. But they're, 
They're wonderful shorts, and they've been, they've been fun to score for home video and also to do in theaters. And I, I hope more of them get booked in other screenings so other companies can get a chance to dig into them and, and, and have fun with them. We were talking about the special rhythm. You did um, four rather than three. You performed four of them at the Museum of Modern Art, and that took a special consideration. Yeah, I, I find that a program of comedy shorts, if you have more than three in a row, it can be too much. And so what Steve Massa and I discovered in doing the Cruel and Unusual Comedy series over a number of years at MoMA, when we'd have a lot of shorts, is if we put a lights-up second intro after two two-reelers, it doesn't feel like as much of a slog. I mean, I can tell from sensing the vibe in the room as an accompanist that after three shorts, you get into the fourth one, if there's no break, you can sense this. Uh, you can sense people having a a hard time concentrating. And with five, it's really, it's it's almost too much. And the, the lights up break halfway through. It's like a palate cleanser for the audience. And also, then my work, it's not quite as much a job of not just only supporting the film, but providing energy so the audience can enjoy the film. So in addition to the three that we usually show in theaters, uh, Dad's Choice, Find the King, and Scrambled Weddings, we added Horse Shy. Which is a fun picture. It really is. Yeah, you can see the template at the Silent Comedy Watch Party where between film two and film three, kind of let Steve go. And, oh, uh, you know, well, I, I need I need more of a break after the first couple of films. <laughs> and, and, and that's certainly... It, yeah, it's but it's certainly... helpful and it makes it feel like a, yeah. a show. Yeah, one thing that a lot of people who do programming, I don't think they quite understand is that it's not a matter of running time. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of the number of stories that are being told and that you're asking the audience to go on the journey with. I say it's a fresh start for each one, and that's a tough, you know, oh, I'm going to meet new characters, and here's a new situation, and I have to start up again. It's like, I don't know, reading a book of short stories, or sometimes I'm asked to go to evenings of 10-minute plays, and it it really is exhausting. Yeah, it it absolutely is. So doing six one-reelers in a row is not the same thing as running a seven-reel feature. Mm -hmm. It's a completely different animal. So putting those breaks in just for the audience's right brains to go... Cleansing breath, and then you can move on. Now, speaking of the Museum of Modern Art, you also played for a feature that many of us have seen a bit of. Uh, I'm speaking of Fire Brigade. You put up the link of the portion of it that is included in uh, Kevin Brownlow's and David Gill's Hollywood documentary series. And I looked at that clip again. It is really exciting. Right. It's one of those things that you, you see. It's at the beginning of episode one. You hear James Mason. Here is the silent film as its public knew it. Not a classic, just a regular release from a big studio. A film from a lost era. And this is really fascinating, extremely well-made sequence with fire trucks speeding around. And so in the last few years, a restoration project was embarked upon by the Library of Congress and, and I think the Film Foundation and the Hobson family. There's a lot of money involved in this because in addition to the black and white elements, there is a short bit of two-color technicolor film that survives of an entire reel that was originally done in two-color technicolor there are color tints, and then there's Hans Schiegel color process in the fire sequence at the end that was digitally reinstated. But pretty much 
except for the Hanshigel, the restoration process was a completely photochemical process. So the program that was done at MoMA, Heather Linville, who is the head of the film lab at the Library of Congress, introduced the show and in a PowerPoint explained the different color processes. To see the whole film in a theater with the color sequences reinstated, it's just thrilling. I watched a screener of it ahead of time. I I was provided a screener, which was definitely helpful because there's a lot of fire bells that go off and marching and firefighters doing exercise. And there's a middle third of the film, almost you forget about the firefighting part of the storyline. But I knew watching it on my iMac... (laughs) that this thing is really going to take off. And I was glad I had thought, oh, I should really set up the theater organ for the Horton Shorts because the fire brigade followed this. In doing some research, it had been shown, I think, at Cinecon in 2009, and somebody posted something somewhere that Philip Carley apparently had played for this, and there was smoke pouring out of the (laughs) piano at the end of the film, which... If you've ever heard Philip play for a real barn burner of a, of a melodrama, you know what that is. I mean, he really, he has uh, told me the way he thinks of it is, you know, as an accomplice, you act along with the film. And if there's a full reel of firefighting with fire trucks and flames shooting out everywhere, and this little three-year-old girl on the top of a building that's on fire, and then Charles Ray has to rescue her. I mean, there's a lot. And what's gratifying for me is my work with the virtual theater organ using samples from the Paramount Organ Works and the Hauptworks software system is that it allows me to bring the sound of the mighty Wurlitzer to places where it isn't usually, not just for the sake of doing this so people are hearing what they heard. The reaction from the audience is always much more strong than it is if I had played for the film on piano. I've done some shows where I played one show on piano and one on theater organ. Just the applause at the end is different. So it's not me. It's, it's just the fact that there's it's, this huge, rich symphonic sound coming at them. It's like the actor with more projection. It's in the auditorium more than a piano yeah, is. Yeah, I think the audience is even more connected emotionally to the film. When MoMA did the Iris Barry series and I played for Intolerance and I used the theater organ and... As much as you think, oh, intolerance, it's two and a half, three hours, and all these bows, and but once those last two reels get a full head of steam going, it really takes off, and the people who came to both shows were just so taken with the film, and I think it's the sound of the theater organ has really helped. So I was really glad to be able to score the fire brigade with the theater organ, and for people to get to see this wonderful picture that most of them knew of from the 45 seconds in the Hollywood series. I'm trying to resist saying that it went over like a house of fire. Uh, But what is absolutely compelling is the way the film is shot, uh, the cooperation of the fire departments. There's so many, many firefighters and fire trucks and all this stuff that you get to watch. There's a sequence where they all go into a burning building and somebody says, send in the asbestos squad. And a whole bunch of firefighters wearing coats and helmets and hoods made of asbestos, which, of course, you couldn't <laughs> use today, go in and rescue people. And just to get to see that mm. uh, is just historically interesting. But the thing for me was that because I was playing the theater organ, I could just hold down a few keys and turn a whole, a whole bunch of stops and just sit there. I didn't have to set the piano on fire mm-hmm. you could uh, just to, be... to get a huge impact out of the film. So it is February, and that means you're back in the classroom. It's a new semester at school. Yeah, yeah. We had our first class session this week. We're back in person. And what was remarkable for me is I I always go around and ask people, why are you taking the class? Uh, Not all of them are film students. Mm Mm-hmm. 
one of the nice things about Wesleyan is there isn't uh, the same kind of departmentalization that there is in some universities where you can only take classes in your department and you have to get special permission and a note from your doctor if you want, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> there are people who are ecology double majors in my class, as well as film students. But all people who have an interest in silent film, and a number of them mentioned that one of the things that piqued their interest was the fact that there was live accompaniment in all of the class sessions. So what are you uh, projecting to do? Uh, sorry, the, a pun unintended. To, yeah. To do uh, differently this semester. What tweaks and changes in the course? I'm not really going to change anything. <laughs> I mean, I've been teaching the class since I think 2016. And there have been a couple of things where I, I've switched a film or switch the order of one class at another, but it's pretty much set at this point. If anything, I may have to drop something a short here and there just for time, but I, I'm not changing anything. I, what I'm looking to see is the fact that everyone, as opposed to last semester, last year, when I taught this in the spring, still live streaming and live accompanying everything out of my apartment, my students were watching the films in their lap. Mm-hmm. And maybe they're watching it at their uh, on a large TV at home. But we are in a screening room with a very large screen and an acoustic Kawaii Baby Grand. So there's that presence to it. The students are looking up at a giant screen and it will have a different impact. And I, I'm curious to see what the reactions are. As far as what I'm showing, that's pretty much set at this point. Do you ever uh, talk while the film is going on? No, I talk. I play. And then we have a conversation. Mm -hmm. I'm incapable of doing that, first of all. The only time I've ever done it was when I played for the restoration of A Trip to the Moon. I did the narration. And there's a clip from that in an earlier podcast, which was interesting to get to do. But I don't talk and play at the same time. I really want pretty much all of my students have zero in, uh, experience of watching silent film in a theater with live music. I want them to get completely absorbed in that trance-like state that mm -hmm. you get into. Our first music clip is something from last December, part of the series at MoMA that was done in tribute to Eileen Bowser. And there's this one program, actually it was the last one I played, a selection of early cinema classics. And the first thing we'll hear is my score live accompanying a film called Amor Pedestre. And this is a sequence from a film that stars Marcel Fabre, a.k.a. Fernandez Perez, <laughs> a.k.a. Marcel Perez, from when he was making films in France. And it's a film that Eileen really liked. And it was part of a genre that she noticed existed, at least in European films at the time. The storytelling visually is you only see people's feet. From the, the knees down, the entire story is told. So I had the challenge in accompanying this film, because there are no faces or bodily gestures, to help an audience of today decode what they're seeing. And what you'll hear in the score is uh, some exposition with Perez and the young woman he's trying to flirt with. And then there's a soldier or somebody in the military who she has in her sights. And you'll hear musically when he enters the picture, so to speak. Well, let's hear that. Okay.
recorded live in performance on December 15th, 2021, yours truly at a Steinway S in the Titus II Theater at Museum of Modern Art, accompanying some of Amor Pedestre, or Love Afoot, I think is the translation of starring Marcel Perez. I think he may have directed that as well. So there's a note to any film teachers out there. There's a great assignment for your students. Make a film that only shows your actors from the knee down. Yeah. I wish I'd known that. I would have assigned that before I retired. That's a yeah, great yeah, concept. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's an interesting subgenre, and it's something that uh, Perez would, would return to the beginning of a film called Pinched that he makes. Oh, a real one is all that survives, but the first few minutes of it are shot this way, and then he pulls back. And there, there are other silent films that you find little sequences like this here and there. So it was something that people, it was a device that people were aware of. Well, it really feels like Ben Modell was shot out of a cannon for 2022 because first thing you had a release from Undercrank. Kickstart had already been done. So the restoration and uh, all the work of the Library of Congress had already been done. We're talking about Xander the Great starring Marion Davies. From 1925. 1925. So it was ready to go. I just got mine. I wanted to tell you about it. I've, I've watched about the first third or first half, and a, a, mm-hmm. a couple of things. What a terrific star Marion Davies was. A lot of her films, I feel like they are um, the equivalent of a, a woman's uh, cable channel movie. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a seven-layer cake, and yeah. we're going to give you some pathos, and we're going to give you some romance, and there's going to be some ventures. And even what I was kind of delighted to see right in the beginning of the first 10 minutes is slapstick comedy without yeah. without apology. Here we're just going to have chases, and we're going to drive cars, and we're not going to halfway do it. We're going to do it just the way a slapstick comedian would do it. And we're not going to keep Marion all clean and tidy. She's going to yeah. get messy like a comedian. Everyone asks as if the uh, Lucille Ball was the first to do that. But boy, Marion Davies is just gets yeah. in there and gets yeah. in there. Alice Howell, Gail Henry, Marion Davies. No, absolutely. But Marion yeah. Davies is a romantic lead, which Alice Howell yes. is not. Correct. Correct. Uh, and that's, I think, you know, really shows her range. Yeah. I also wanted to say something I noticed even this early in the score. Really interesting touch you do. There is okay. a scene where she has just found a home. Finally, she's been taken out of the orphanage. Yes, folks, it's that kind of a movie. Uh, yes, starts in the orphanage. She's, t- she's adopted by Hedda Hopper. She's adopted by Hedda Hopper. Yes, that Hedda Hopper. <laughs> and and it's an interesting choice by the writers. She's not immediately overjoyed. She's she's crying because she misses her former life and her friends. But I thought you made such an interesting choice because the music is slow and it's in key with her crying, but it's not in a minor key. It doesn't sound, oh, it's hopeless and despairing. It's like, no, uh-huh. there's a, this is your new life. There's good things coming. You feel sad, but there's this note of hope. And I thought that was a really interesting the way you kind of maintain two moods at once in your score. Oh, interesting, interesting. Yeah, it's funny because I know we we wanted to talk about Xander the Great on this episode, and what what I was going to talk about is that it's one of the scores I really don't remember much about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the piano score I did for Little Orphant Annie for Eric Grayson, he he keeps saying it's the best thing, one of the best scores you've ever done. I'm like, I really don't really remember much about it. Not to poo-poo the score, just that sometimes that, that'll happen, I'll, and, and there are 
just instinctive things that I'll do. And I think that the moment you're talking about, I don't really remember deliberately making a choice, but I think with Marion Davies, and this is happening, you know, we we did a live stream of Beauty's Worth for the Cinema Arts Center a couple of weeks ago. And no, Mana had not seen the picture. And she's here, you know, in, in the room with me, of course, and absolutely loved it. We were, we just kept talking over and over, even the day or two after the stream. It, it, but what a great performer she is! This is the thing that that in, in in addition to the malignment of from the myth from Citizen Kane, where you know Susan Alexander Kane is an amalgam of a few different people, which is what Laura Gabrielle Fowler, uh, her biographer, has told me. And the untalented part is not supposed to be Marion Davies. It's, an, it's another mistress of another tycoon from the first time i did a kickstarter for one night who was in flower along with the awful rosebud jokes people would post people would write oh yeah but can she act i'm like she absolutely can and one of the things you see in xander the great and this is something that i saw from one night who was in flower is that i don't know if it's she insisted on it or the director recognized it but there are several moments in these films where they will just hold on a medium close-up of Marion Davies while she thinks something over and makes a decision. But you can see what she's thinking. Oh, I think that's and the so mark to, of a film actor. You can see right. Thought. And there are so there is so much of the story that is it is her story. It is she is the one driving the story, and we are not being told in hints from intertitles what she's thinking. And so the moment you're describing, while I don't remember. <laughs> making one choice or the other, I do remember thinking, I don't have to work very hard Mm -hmm. uh, because we have this beautifully shot medium close-up of Marion Davies doing her thing and being in the moment. And anything that I do is going to push the audience back a little. So I want to hold back and bring people up. But I think think you're... I may have in, in the moment thought this isn't an awful moment for her, that there is some some hope. But this is a thing where... As an accompanist, I am watching the screen and constantly gauging how much to lean back or back off mm-hmm. and, and trust what's on screen to be decodable emotionally by whoever is watching it. And there are so many moments in these films that do that. And, and I, I do think that as much as Hearst gets a bad rap for a keeping her in costume dramas or whatever. I think that now that we're seeing pretty much all of the films she made, gradually, you know, Ed LaRusso and I are just watching the calendar every year. Well, it's going PD next year. Okay. (laughs) So we're seeing more of them. I think that one thing you get from watching all of them is that, yes, there are costumes and production values and wonderful sets by Joseph Urban and costumes by his, his daughter, the films do get better and better, and she does get more and more to do. And there isn't this dividing line where, oh, she's in a whole bunch of stuffy costume pictures, and then all of a sudden she's in show people. There is a gradual progression, and Xander the Great is a huge step. It's her first picture made out west, and she's got some great supporting players in it, and there's a western motif. So if you watch them, as as I have been doing, there's a progression. And just to let everyone listening know, Xander the Great was kickstarted in 2021 by Ed LaRusso, who, between him and me and Laura Gabrielle Fowler who, with her her biography, we are all doing what we can to wipe this awful myth 
that people have about Marion Davies out of people's consciousness by putting her life and her films back out there. So, so the Kickstarter kick, paid his, for a wonderful edition, and now absolutely now it is for sale. Whether or not you participated from Undercrack, absolutely, and it's available on Blu-ray as well as DVD. This is my first time uh, in a while doing something on both formats, and we plan to release most of our titles on both formats going forward through 2022. And this is something I scored on Theater Oregon again because it's a 1925 picture. I just wanted to walk back that I thought the way you were describing how you watch a scene and how you see the actor is interpreting the scene and expressing thought. It's really, you're a scene partner. Oh, absolutely. And that that comes back to what Philip always says, that you're acting along with the film. Mm -hmm. So you have to imbue yourself with the emotion of what's going on but also be careful not to mirror it, but to to support it in a way where you're just supplementing. I think somebody once somebody at a show played a few years ago they described it as being something where the music is optimizing mm-hmm. what's happening on screen for the audience. Mm-hmm. So we've got a, another excerpt coming up, yes. also from the Eileen Bowser series at the Museum of Modern Art, and this very past December. Not a familiar title to me. Yeah, Men in Montan. Not only was it not familiar to you, I uh, I forgot which film it was <laughs> until about three, two or three minutes in. Every once in a while, I have something like that. Well, in the reverse, where I think, oh, I've never seen this film. And then it starts and I go, oh, this one. <laughs> so I mistakenly, without looking it up first, because I figured, oh, I know what this is, lumped it in with films like Ballet Mécanique and stuff like that. So I thought, oh, it's going to be, you know, 10, 15 minutes of triangles <laughs> and shots of spools and gears and stuff like that. Of course, that's not what this film is at all. Emmanuel Montant is a film that runs about half an hour more along the lines of some of the more experimental films like The Seashell and the Clergyman and not Picture of Dorian Gray. What's the other one? Oh, The Within- Fall of the House of Usher? Yes, it's more like that. So once I started playing thinking it's this one thing, and then it starts and I'm like, oh God, it's this one. (laughs) And then I had to shift gears. (laughs) And hopefully the audience didn't really notice. But it's, it's one of these films where even I had a hard time following some of it. And so stylistically, it's, it's more expressionistic films from the late 20s or in the street the 1948 mm-hmm. film by Helen Levitt that I scored for the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It's a, a style that I use. I don't know what to call it. So I quickly shifted gears. There's less to work with visually in terms of figuring out what's going on. And who is this person? And are she in love with this guy? Is that the guy? Is he, is he, is he upset with this other person? And, and there are some places in the score where I'm just playing and waiting for information that I can understand <laughs> to come along. But just the same, and you'll get to hear something that's not comedy and not too heavy-handed. If anything, I may be marginally influenced musically by European piano music of the 20s or 30s, although I'm not, I'm not a conservatory musician. I can't play Debussy or Ravel to save my life. But it's in that, that sort of vein. And this is... Uh, live performance, December 15th, 2021. Titus II Auditorium on a Steinway S piano. Here is a few minutes from the middle of Manuel Montan.
live in performance at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City on December 15th, 2021. Yours true accompanying a film called Menil Montan, which I'm sure I'm marginally mispronouncing. The piano had been tuned actually twice before this series began because the pianos had been sitting there idle for about a couple of years. And I said, have them tuned twice because you're gonna there's going to be a pitch race and then the piano is going to go, ah, you think you're going to tune me? And then it'll go <laughs> drift out. And I knew it would drift again because I had played a whole bunch of shows on it. So occupational hazard, but it's still a very nice instrument that used to belong to Blanchette Rockefeller. Wow. Uh, and came to the museum at the time that there was a round of renovations that happened in 2003. And I, I show up and this instrument had been rebuilt inside and out by Steinway. Wow. Here it was and, you know, don't put anything on it. And it was Blanchett Rockefeller's piano. And the action on it is absolutely stunning. So It's an instrument that I play better on this instrument than I do on other instruments just because of the responsiveness of the, of the, the action. And the action means the wooden inner guts of the piano and what it feels like in your hands to play the instrument. People often ask, do you have a favorite piano to play? I don't, but this is always a factor when I get to a venue is to see what I'm in for. Mm -hmm. uh, not just, you know, notes that are out of tune or clunky or wobbly or whatever, but what the feel of the action is. And there are some pianos where you have to work a little harder. Like the piano I'm playing at Wesleyan is a very new piano. So it's a little stiff only because it hasn't, you know, Philip Carley hasn't played for the Fire Brigade on it a bunch of times. <laughs> but once I accompany Orphans of the Storm oh boy. in a couple of weeks, in, during which the French Revolution happens, uh, that'll loosen it up a little bit. But this is always a factor. And even the, the piano in Titus One, which is a very nice Steinway B, uh, came from uh, Robert Menschel several years ago, which has a very, very nice action. The, the instrument in Titus Two. It doesn't have as much bottom as other pianos do, but it, the action, I find there's stuff I can play that I can't mm -hmm. on other instruments. One of the, the factors is simply how quickly the key returns after it's struck, how fast it comes yeah. up. So if you are trying to play a repeated note, there are pianos that simply can't play that because they can't return quickly enough. Yeah, and so it's like my fingers know that there are things I can do now. Mm-hmm. There's a physical freedom that goes into my hands and my brains that opens me up a little bit. Not that I'm playing faster or more notes, but I just feel a little bit freer than I might on an instrument where I really either have to work hard or just if the piano just doesn't sound all that great. My piano here in the apartment, I'm doing my darnest to keep it in tune, but it's a 1918 piano and its action really needs to be rebuilt. Some work was done on it. It was restrung and it got new pin block and stuff like that, but it has the hammers and shanks that were put into it in 1918 and it definitely affects my playing. Yeah, folks, and it, a, a it, it is it's definitely a factor. A piano, folks, is not like a violin or wine. Old <laughs> isn't always better. It's more like a car. Old could be better. But it yeah. may take some work. You got to maintain the heck out of it. And if you were if you were born in 1918, you'd be a little wobbly <laughs> as well. That's what I, I always say about theater organs. Well, you know this this rank doesn't speak well, and the trims don't work. Yeah, if, if you were born in 1928, you you need to have your tibias recalibrated every once in a while too. <laughs> exactly. And the Titus One piano we used to have for years. There was a piano that was on chrome legs, and it belonged to the architecture department. And Stuart Oderman and I. There's something wrong with the action. I mean, it hurt our hands. And there's one point I said to Stuart, when you're done playing, do your hands hurt? He said, yeah. 
it took us a while, but we lobbied for somebody to come in and work on the instrument. And the trick was that it belonged to the architecture department, so you couldn't just replace it. But so I forget, I don't know what happened. But at some point, I was informed, Robert Menschel has, has given, you know, we now have this very nice Steinway that doesn't have chrome legs, and the, the action is really nice. It's a beautiful, really, really nice sound. That was a thing where playing for films on piano in Titus 1, all of a sudden it got a lot easier. And I could be more expressive than I could with the chrome leg piano. I mean, folks who are music fans, imagine if every time Louis Armstrong showed up to a place, they handed him some cornet he'd never seen before. Uh, yeah. You know. <laughs> this is why people not only have their instrument, but they have a name for it. Yeah. They know its idiosyncrasies oh, and oh, yeah, the you tones the, you can get out of it. The Oscar Petersons you know? and the Victor Borgas of the world get to uh, drag their own Brosendorfer around. Um, yeah, and there's a reason B.B. King worked with, is it, was it, his, his guitar was Lucille, Lucille is that right? Yeah. So the instrument's responsiveness is definitely becomes part of the scoring process, actually. So let's call the uh, Guinness Book of World Record people. <laughs> Beverly of Graustark, another Marion Davies film, completes its kickstarter in am i correct two hours yes i often would joke that at some point i'm going to get to a point where i will fund a project after clicking on go while lifting my hand off of my trackpad (laughs) it's because of a trust that i've built up with people who know what i'm doing they know that i will finish it may take a little longer the product we put out is uh, of a certain quality And I also post updates pretty regularly. There was a period of time with uh, the Douglas McLean project where, because the films were being digitally restored, I had a couple of months to kill. And I thought, well, I will post an update of every single one of the 23 feature films McLean made because nobody knows who he is. Mm -hmm. So I would find something uh, on Media History Digital Library put an ad in a review. And so by the time I could start saying, hey, I can score this now, everybody has now read a version of the films of Douglas McLean. So I try to stay in touch with people and build up that connection. And and at this point also, I don't know if I was the first, but I think I was one of the first to use crowdfunding and manufacture on demand to get films that you've never heard of but should out there with accidentally preserved the very first one which was just kickstarted at the end of 2012 and then released the following June. And this was my 10th Kickstarter. What's happened, I think that while it used, originally was a new idea, everybody gets the idea now. Oh, this movie does not have Harold Lloyd in it or Mary Pickford and the only way it'll get seen is if us fans support a project. We are all working together to help these films become available again. So with Beverly of Graustark, this is one of these films where somebody on Nitrateville mentioned, you know, you've done this heroic thing rescuing it. Well, the film's already been rescued. And I said, I don't know if waiting till January 1st is all that heroic. (laughs) (laughs) That's when it went public domain. Public domain. So the Library of Congress has already done the heavy lifting. Is that correct? Yeah. This film was actually shown in Portanone in October of 2019. There is a nitrate print from Marion Davies Collection, which came to the Library of Congress in the 1950s. Complete black and white nitrate print. Again, this is a picture that's always been available. There's been a black and white 35 millimeter print. I did two shows of this earlier in 2019 with a black and white print. And it was one of these things where I thought, why has nobody seen this picture? It's so good. 
this is the first one that really starts to look like show people in the Patsy. It has the same studio glitz and production values and camera work and storytelling and fun. It's not a drama with light comic touches. It's a Mm rom-com. It's just so well made. There was a moment maybe in 2018 when I'm sitting down at the Library of Congress uh, because I have a, a, a co-branding deal with the Library of Congress, Rob Stone, who's a film curator and preservationist there, and I, we will sit down and he'll go through the catalog and I'll throw titles at him because we're looking for stuff. Well, what else can Undercrank put out? I said, well, what about Beverly of Grouse Stark? We knew it was not PD at the moment, but we knew eventually it would enter the public domain. And I think I had viewed the film on a flatbed film viewer and I was just so struck with how fun it is. Well, let's see what we have on it. See, do we have nitrate? Oh, oh, yes, we have this element. We have that element. And then he's looking through the catalog entry, and it says there's a reel here, 400 feet. The only notes say might be color. So call, it was either Larry Smith or George Willem in in the nitrate vault. Could you pull this and see what this is? And sure enough, it's a two-color, technicolor nitrate print of the ending of the film. Oh, so that exists. So all of this got scanned apparently in 4K, and that's what was shown. It was graded, the Technicolor was scanned and added on, and that's what was shown in Portanoni in 2019. So my idea with this Kickstarter was to do it as quickly as possible, not just to get it over with, but I have another project, a much bigger project, and I also didn't want this one to get bogged down with stretch goals and add-ons and bonuses and shipping 550 pieces of product to people. So what I tried with Kickstarter, one thing you can do is limit the number of backers. So once you hit X number of backers on a backer level, that's it. And I did some math. I figured if 150 people backed the project, I'd be fine. So that's why this thing funded and stopped two hours after I I went live with it. But to be clear, for the people who missed it, copies will be available for sale. Yes. Absolutely. The the idea, anything that I kickstart is going to go out to the public. There There are some kickstarters that happen where the people who get to see it are people who are backers and the film is not released. Uh, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. The idea is to get this film out and it will be released on DVD and Blu-ray. The scan was already done, the work was already done, and I have already scored the film. Oh, yeah. And the thing will be out in a few months. And Marlene Weissman is already working on the cover art. So, and she's come up with something that, I don't know how she tops herself every time, but I, I love this will, will be amazing. Xander art, even the menu looks good yeah. on the Xander well, thank Blu-ray. You. Yeah, the menu I, I kind of did, but I borrowed it from, from her, her idea. Marlene's you know, yeah. I just This has nothing to do with my music, but I will tell you something about what Marlene has to do is that with some of these films, there either is no promotional artwork or the artwork that does survive is completely off. Marion Davies films, even if they're comedies, the surviving promotional art and ads do not look like it's from a comedy. Mm-hmm. And this seems to be prevalent. I did a live stream of Feel My Pulse starring B.B. Daniels, which is a great comedy that nobody really knows about. Co-stars William Powell, which is bad guy roles. And I thought, oh, great. I'll just go on Lantern and I'll search up an ad. And all the images I could find for Feel My Pulse, which is this fun, rollicking comedy they look like dramatic films. And I don't know if, if this is because you couldn't show women as comedians. You know, this is what we hit with when Night Was in Flower, that all the promotional ads look like a drippy costume picture, and it's, it, and it's not that. And so Marlene had to come up with something. So 
Marlene has done a really nice job uh, with the design concept she's come up with. The storyline is it's one of these trading places mm-hmm. things where Prince and the Pauper kind of thing. What's different in, in Beverly of Graustark is that her character switches places with a guy, mm. her cousin, Oscar, who's a prince, played by Creighton Hale. And this is absolutely a, a comedy film as opposed to a light film where she she would sneak comic things in here and there. It's a really tight eight reels. I mean, it, it clocks in at 78 minutes, not even a full eight reels. It's got a great cast. Roy Darcy, if you needed somebody who's more despicable than Eric von Stroheim, <laughs> you would get Roy Darcy. I mean, he plays the Stroheim part in Merry Widow, which is direct. It's a Stroheim picture. And so he's in it. Uh, Antonio Moreno is in so it. So it's like those and, when you make a comedy of today, like you make Airplane, you don't hire comedians. You get all the real actors who really yeah. do this stuff. Which is, uh, you know, that's a stronger comic statement to me. Yeah. Uh, to have your villain actually be Basil Rathbone and not Dem DeLuise. Right, right. So the film is a lot of fun. And what was interesting for me in terms of scoring it was the first maybe half of the film was something where I would score it in little pieces. There are a number of sequences that open, something happens, and then it comes to a resolution, and then there's a fade. And then the next scene is its own little segment. It's not episodic per se, but I had a lot of very specific music moods and genres to work with and jump around from one after another. And then there's a point about halfway through the picture when everything is finally set in motion. Uh, where she is, she's pretending to be her own cousin. There's a plot afoot to usurp the throne because there's a whole plot point I'm not going to go into here. And I was saying to Monica, because we're doing the recording in our home, I said, oh, I'm at this point where I'm just doing my my silent comedy music. (laughs) This is my regular stuff. I don't have to worry about it. There aren't a lot of specific musical things that have to be very specifically done. It it was an unusual thing in that way. That you're just Uh, pushing it forward. It builds up at the end. Yeah. There's a a sword fight at the end. And it's a film where Marion has a number of moments where we hold on her and watch her figure things out. And I don't want to give it away, but the moment in the tail end of the first reel where the switch happens, it's done in a way that I've never seen done before. And it's done in a very different way that involves the imaginations of the people in the scene and us at home. I love moments like that where we are allowed to play along with what's happening on screen. And so, yeah. Yeah, I think, like I said, it's the first one that looks like the rest of her silent films. And it's it's just lots and lots of fun. And I think that once it gets out there, people will eat it up like it's an Edward Everett Horton <laughs> <laughs> discovery. Uh, and then I can move on to the next giant project I have in, in mind for this year. Yeah. yeah. Well, once once I ship this and I'm ready to start talking about the next one, I will start talking about it. So you've got some performances coming up. I see Kansas Silent Film Festival. Yes, they're having their festival at the end of February. Well, I'll be playing there. Uh, this is their 25th year, so they're they're actually running 25 films. Their regular accompanists, Jeff Rapsis on piano, uh, Marvin Falwell on organ, and Bill Benningfield on organ uh, will be there. And also Rodney Sauer and the Mont Alto Motion Picture Orchestra, wow. who are often special guests at that festival, will be playing for stuff Where there. Do you be- it's the last weekend of February. Yeah, what, what films? I know they have me slotted for a, a handful of shorts, but I know I am playing for The Goose Woman, and I am playing for Stage Struck, yeah. the Gloria Swanson picture. The Cinema Arts Center, our monthly streaming series, is 
coming up on February 22nd. We are doing a program of Edward Everett Horton comedies. It's the same three. I'll be live scoring them out of our living room. I am also going to be at the Jacob Burns Film Center on the first Thursday in March, which I think is the third, but look at your calendar. I will be there with Dana Stevens, whose new book on Buster Keaton has just come out. It's called Camera Man, two words. So I'll be doing uh, The General and Neighbors, and she'll be introducing the program. And also percolating is a show that I will be doing with James Curtis, whose biography of Keaton is also out just now. It's nice to leave my apartment and go somewhere else to do something. It's good for my brain and my soul, and I'm glad for the folks who are able to come out uh, at their comfort level to a cinema and and see silent film with live music, uh, because... As close as you can get doing a live stream with live music, it's just not the same thing. And I'm so glad that we can continue the resumption of whatever that we're able to. This has been episode 45 of the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent film. I'm Ben Modell. I'm a silent film historian, presenter, accompanist, home video label, and former piano tuner. I'm here, as I always am, with my my friend, my co-host and co-producer, Kerr Lockhart. Folks, have a, have a good, safe week. We'll be talking to you on the next episode. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. Ben Modell.